The information conveyed in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for clinical advice or consultation. This is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and welcome to the Psychiatry and Law Podcast, Episode 6, Decision-Making Capacity and Decision-Makers. Who gets to decide what sorts of medical care a person receives? One would imagine that most adults in the United States have some sort of authority over decisions related to their own bodies. And if you think that, you would be correct. However, there is a line somewhere, and people on the other side of that line have someone else making their decisions. But before we get to that important distinction, let's talk about some general ideas. To start talking about consent, we really have to begin with something called assent. That's spelled A-S-S-E-N-T. It's easiest to understand the concept of assent in the context of delivering pediatric care. With a young child as the patient, we're not really expecting the child to understand the nuances of the care being delivered to them. That sort of information is typically provided to the parents. Now, it's ideal if the child gives us permission to perform the diagnostic test or therapeutic procedure on her or his body. For example, a four-year-old child on the oncology service learns very quickly what the phlebotomy cart looks like when she stretches out her little arm and allows a technician to draw blood, she is assenting to the procedure. She may not understand why blood is being drawn. She may not understand which tests are being performed on her blood sample, and she may not understand why the tests are necessary. However, she did give permission for the needle to access her vein. Such a circumstance is called assent. Now, do pediatricians always have the assent of their patients? No, there would be a lot less crying in pediatric offices if that were true. But pediatricians do obtain consent from the parents, and that's what we'll talk about. In the adult domain, or with parents of pediatric patients, consent is something a bit more sophisticated than assent. The consenting patient has some understanding of what's going to happen. That patient gives permission to the individual or team performing the procedure. Consent can be verbal or written. This sort of simple consent is typically verbal. Think about the same blood dry described in a child on the oncology service in an adult. The adult may ask uh, which blood test is being performed. They may have some grasp between the blood test and their health condition that's being assessed. Verbal consent is relied upon heavily in low-risk, day-to-day practice. When a physician places her stethoscope on a patient's chest, there is some level of consent given by the patient to the physician. The doctor might say, I'd like to listen to your lungs and heart now. And the patient makes some sort of affirmative gesture or gives them verbal permission, and the exam proceeds. That's consent. Now, what happens when the stakes are higher? What happens when the test or procedure actually has some real risk associated with it? The higher standard is informed consent. Various codes of medical and research ethics commonly think of informed consent as requiring four elements. Sometimes, these elements are broken down further, so you might find them referred to as the five or six elements of informed consent. They end up boiling down to the following. Number one, the medical provider must share information on the risks and benefits of the proposed treatment and the risks and benefits of alternatives to the proposed treatment. Remember that an alternative to proposed treatment is always no treatment. Number two, the patient must comprehend the information provided. Number three, 
the patient must have the capacity to weigh the decision. And number four, the patient must grant consent freely and voluntarily without coercion. Let's look at these a bit closer. Well, this is a podcast episode, so we're not really looking so much as listening and thinking, I guess. The, the first one is dependent on the medical provider. They are a one-way conduit of information. You, the medical provider, are sharing information. Sticking with our oncology example, maybe you're sharing information about chemotherapy. You're telling the patient about increased survival rates if chemotherapy is used. You're also sharing information about adverse effects. With regards to alternatives, you may discuss other chemotherapy regimens, palliative care, or no treatment. With each of these, you discuss the risks as well. The other three elements depend more on the patient. Number two was comprehension of the material provided. Well, I guess this one still depends a bit on the clinician as well. The clinician must explain the information in language the patient can understand. A popular method of addressing the comprehension piece is to ask the patient to repeat back the information that has been provided. We'll skip number three for a bit and talk about number four. In the United States, it's my opinion that we don't consider the idea of coercion enough. I think we sometimes make assumptions that patients in this country are free from governmental coercion in their healthcare decisions, so there must not be any other sort of coercion. Be careful to think about subtle or not-so-subtle coercion from family, close friends, or even from healthcare providers. Now let's come back to the capacity assessment. I think that was number three. And it's the capacity assessment that forms the heart and soul of consultation liaison psychiatry. As all psychiatry residents and psychiatrists know, you don't need to be a psychiatrist to perform a capacity assessment. This analysis of the patient's mental state can be undertaken by a variety of healthcare providers in the hospital. In fact, the person performing the procedure really should try to assess capacity, even if psychiatry is going to get called anyway. However, psychiatry often does get involved due to our familiarity with cognitive evaluations. I would consider cognitive exam an overlapping domain of assessment, but not the same thing as capacity evaluation. Assessing capacity requires us to ascertain if the patient appreciates their situation and the consequences of their choice. They also need to be able to communicate their choice. Now that communication doesn't have to be verbal, right? Think about nonverbal ways that patients in the hospital can communicate a choice. We also need to understand if the patient is able to manipulate the information they receive rationally. Now, rational manipulation is not exactly what it sounds like. Rational manipulation in this context does not mean that the patient has to agree with our rationale. On the contrary, it means that they reach conclusions that are logically related to their starting ideas. Therefore, it might be rational for a patient to refuse certain treatments on religious grounds, even though you may not share their specific religious beliefs. In November 2007, Dr. Paul Applebaum wrote a fantastic paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that actually gives you sample questions you can use to tease out the answers to these capacity issues. Fair warning, 
I'm going to say something that's going to ruffle some feathers. Many legal scholars and judges don't really agree upon or care about the distinction between capacity and competence. I know that consultation liaison psychiatrists make a big deal about capacity dealing with decisions in the hospital and competence as something that a judge adjudicates. It turns out that only CL psychiatrists are so persnickety with their language. It's true, however, that only judges can adjudicate a patient's rights to make decisions about their bodies or their possessions. When we're talking about medical decisions in patients who have not been adjudicated, you, you might as well use the term capacity, mainly so that you don't irritate your consultation liaison colleagues. Anyway, we've talked about assent, consent, and informed consent. We're done with these ideas, right? There's one last piece that bears mentioning. The pinnacle of the consent pyramid is written informed consent. Do you remember from uh, the American Jurisprudence episode the name for the stone at the top of a pyramid? It's pyramidion, in case you forgot. Written informed consent is up there. It's basically taking the informed consent process and turning it into a written document that the patient and the medical provider sign. I get a bit irritated about those super long and dense forms that make up the bulk of American informed consent paperwork. Having the patient sign the form itself is not enough. That signature must be accompanied by a real discussion in language the patient can understand. Again, a quick and easy way to make sure the patient grasped the gist of the conversation is to have them repeat parts of it or give them an opportunity to ask detailed questions. Sometimes I worry that these long forms with tiny print are substituted for actual conversations with the patient. Anyway, enough about that stuff. So let's say that everyone agrees that the patient lacks capacity to make healthcare decisions. What now? There needs to be a surrogate decision maker assigned, and that person needs some advice, right? By the way, sometimes this person is called the proxy decision maker, and sometimes they're called the surrogate decision maker. So I might lapse into using that language interchangeably, and I apologize in advance. There used to be some debate several decades ago in the realms of medical ethics and law. The advice given to surrogate decision makers was to make a decision that was in the best interests of the incompetent party. That might sound helpful and somewhat innocent, but it turned out to be a bit more paternalistic than that. Decisions made in the best interest of the patient can be difficult to figure out because it requires someone to decide just what is in the best interest of the particular patient. In the end, the decision maker may just do what the doctor says, which could take the actual decision-making power out of the hands of the decision maker. So another standard came along and challenged the best interest doctrine around the mid-20th century, just in time for the civil rights movement and greater attention to civil liberties and personal freedom. This is the substituted judgment standard, and it's supposed to capture the idea of personal autonomy better than the best interest standard. In substituted judgment, the proxy decision maker should make a medical decision for the patient that stays in line with the kind of decision the patient themselves would have made 
if they still possessed capacity to make their own decisions. As you can imagine from the standard, it's best for the decision maker to know the patient very, very well. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, in this country, we believe in self-determination. We believe in autonomy. We believe in individual liberty. This is America. And substituted judgment fits much better with those ideals than does the best interest approach. By the way, from my personal experience, the substituted judgment approach also seems to respect families' wishes more than the best interest model. Because who knows most of our patients better than we do? Their families. There's another really cool model that we're not going to discuss so much. I like to call it the narrative model, but some people call it the patient's life story model. And that's exactly what it is. The decision maker is advised to make a decision based on the choices the patient has made for themselves in the past. On the surface, this may sound similar to the substituted judgment model. And on the surface, it is similar. I'll leave it to you to discover more about the narrative model of decision making and find the differences between this model and the substituted judgment model. Okay, so now we know what sort of advice we're going to give the decision maker. So who is going to make the decision? We already know that the default state for people age 18 and older in the United States is that the patient themselves makes their own medical decisions. There is one major exception. Individuals who have been adjudicated incompetent by the court system will have all of their decisions made by a guardian. The word of a guardian is equivalent to the word of the patient themselves if they were competent. Just like with children, it's nice if you can get assent from the patient who has a guardian. Technically, assent is not absolutely mandatory. If you come across a patient who has an identified guardian, you need to clarify two things. Number one, have the guardian produce a copy of the guardianship paperwork immediately verify that guardianship is still in effect. Sometimes guardians forget to renew a time-limited guardianship and then things get really complicated. The second thing you must do is actually read the guardianship paperwork. Is the guardian in charge of person, property, or both? Guardians of person are allowed to make medical decisions. Guardians of property are allowed to make financial decisions. Guardians of both well, or self-explanatory. So let's say there's no guardian. The next thing you look for are other legal documents, and we can lump these all into a category of advanced directives. In many modern electronic health records, there are often prominent buttons on the face page that contain scanned copies of the advanced directive if one exists. You also want to look at these documents yourself and not just take someone's word for it that they exist. Let's talk about a few of these advanced directives. A healthcare power of attorney or a durable power of attorney is a person who is authorized to make healthcare decisions if the patient is incapacitated. This is a really nice document to have because there are so many decisions, big and small, that can't be anticipated. A living will is the sort of document that usually spells out your wishes if you're dealing with end of life. So resuscitation, ventilation, intubation, tube feedings, 
Things like that would be found in a living will. A living will is a more narrow type of advance directive than a healthcare power of attorney. Another document you may encounter with patients that have serious and persistent mental illness is called a psychiatric advance directive or a PAD. These documents can be really helpful and I don't see enough of them. They're written by the patient, usually with assistance, when they're doing well. They may suggest approaches to use for management of their illness in the event that they lose decisional capacity. Patients might specify which psychoactive medications work best when they become psychotic. They may proactively consent for psychiatric admission in some states. They may specify which psychiatric inpatient unit they prefer for admission. Or they may give advanced consent for electroconvulsive therapy. If your state has PADs, I highly recommend you learn about them and discuss them with your patients. So just a quick recap. I'm going to throw out some words and phrases, and I'd like you to make sure that you understand them. Assent. Consent. Informed consent. Written informed consent. Four elements of informed consent. Capacity and competence. Capacity assessment. Proxy decision maker. Surrogate decision maker. Best interest of the patient. Substituted judgment guardianship of person, guardianship of property, advanced directive, psychiatric advanced directive, durable power of attorney, healthcare power of attorney, and living will. When it's two in the morning, on call, and people are freaking out about whether a patient can or cannot do the thing that people in the hospital want them to do, you may be the person with the most knowledge to offer about these matters. Best of luck to you.